Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here with Indre Viscontes. She is a professor of psychology at the University of San Francisco. Uh, she is a neuroscientist and operatic soprano, and she is the author of a recent book titled How Music Can Make You Better. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the psychology of music. So, Dr. Viscontes, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Okay, great. So, um, let me start with a quote from your book to add a little bit of context to the question I want to ask you. Uh, so, at a certain point you say, uh, music isn't music until our minds make it so. Sound can be noise in one context, but music in another. So, I mean, I read this quote and because I went through your great course, Brain Myths Exploded, I, I was reminded of one of the myths that you talk about there, uh, about uh, how we don't really perceive reality as it is. So, would you say that music is also a construct of our brains and if our brains didn't evolve to process sound as they do, we wouldn't experience uh, music. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you still don't believe me, just think about for a second what it is that music really is, just in, the, in terms of the physics of it. It's just compressions and rarefactions of air, right? Very simple. So how is it that we decided or that our brain sort of evolved to turn that into something that can incite wars, that can make us fall in love, that, you know, has such a profound effect on us? It has to be in our brains because it's just a physical, you know, it, it's, it's physics are, are, are so kind of simple in that way. Now, that's not to say that the sound wave itself isn't, has, doesn't have a lot of complexity in it, right? So, so but we could have... You can imagine many other animals that hear sound in a very different way, right? There are animals that see sound. There are animals that, you know, essentially smell sound. Or they, and, and by sound, again, we just mean just perturbations in the air. So we just happen to have evolved a, a, a way for us, for ourselves, to be able to turn it into this amazing subjective, you know, hearing experience. Um, but... Anyone who has experienced hearing loss of any kind, even if it's temporary, has, you know, has, has, has realized how when that, you know, that, when that actual um, stimulus is impoverished, it's really hard for the brain to do what it does, um, you know, to turn it into something meaningful. And yet, it's, we still find ways. So, like, for example, if you go into a pool and you're underwater, all of a sudden the perturbations of air sound very different. Uh, but pretty soon your brain starts to interpret them and in a way that, you know, actually provides you with some meaningful information. Um, so that, that's to me what's remarkable about it is, is the fact that, you know, our brains are able to do this. Uh, and, and anyone who, you know, you can have two people in a room listening to the same piece of music, so the exact same sound wave and have very different experiences. For one person, it can be awful. It can be annoying. It can be, you know, just they hate it. Uh, literally, it can incite them to anger. And for the other person, it can be the most sublime, you know, evidence of, of just the best parts of humanity. So, you know, it's not in the physics of it. It's in the way that your mind interprets it. It has to be. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, since we are talking about uh, how our brains process information, in this case, how they allow for us to experience music, is there any evolutionary account of music? That is, uh, is music any sort of adaptation of our minds? Is it a byproduct of other cognitive mechanisms, for example? Because I, I recall uh, reading Steven Pinker, for example, saying that art in general was just mental cheesecake, and so we really didn't uh, evolve directly to create art, but is probably the byproduct of some other things that we do, some other adaptations. Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, people like uh, Jeffrey Miller, that is another evolutionary psychologist, uh, uh, have proposed that things like music maybe have evolved under sexual selection. But I guess that, that mm-hmm. uh, approach has a bit of an issue there, because when we look back at uh, more traditional societies like hunter-gatherers, for example, uh, I think that most of the music that is performed there is a collective activity and not really an individual one like we tend to see in our modern society. So what would you have to say about that? Yeah, music isn't just used for sexy times, uh, right? So it's used when we bury our dead. Uh, It's often the first thing that baby hears after they are born and the mother is trying to soothe them. And there's uh, to me, it's kind of cool, too, that mothers who sing lullabies to their babies, not only do the babies benefit, but the mothers benefit, too. And there's some there's some evidence that lullabies, you know, are pretty dark in a lot of their, uh, you know, in a lot of their subject matter. And that's obviously not for the baby, but in part potentially for the mother who is experiencing some kind of postpartum blues. But anyway, okay. So you mentioned uh, Steven Pinker, uh, which is one of the views that music is auditory cheesecake, that it just, uh, you know, kind of harnesses uh, aspects of our minds that were developed for some other purpose or, or evolved for some other purpose. You mentioned Jeffrey Miller, of course, the sexual selection hypothesis. Um, but there are two other views that I think are worth uh, uh, considering. And of course, I don't have the answer fully. Like, we know, we don't really know exactly why we evolved to love and, and appreciate music. Um, but one other view is pr- put, put forth by Jared Diamond, uh, author of Guns, Germs, and Steel. And I cite that particular book because that's sort of the idea that there are certain advantages that you know, prototypical humans had or people in, in different parts of the world had that allowed them to dominate. And so his one of his views is that the fact that we have a particularly specific larynx that allows us to make all of these kinds of sounds was one of the reasons why we were able to create civilizations, um, because it allowed us to create all kinds of different sounds, including singing, and that, that probably singing predated language, uh, in his view. Um, then there's this view that instead of thinking about music as the kind of byproduct or, 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 or evo- of evolution directly, what if we consider music as a tool that allowed us to then you know, survive and reproduce in, in a better way, a little bit like fire. So one of the reasons why we are able to house these pretty um, relatively large, uh, very metabolically costly brains in our skulls um, is because we are able to cook our food and get a lot of calories uh, from not a lot of effort. So if you think about a gorilla, a gorilla is 
on average physically larger than a human, but its brain is on average smaller. And the reason is, is that the gorilla has a raw diet and it needs to spend most of its time chewing and eating to fuel that, you know, rel that, you know, big brain, right? So we actually have a brain that is about the size that we should, given uh, primates of our size, but we've somehow managed to fuel it, which other primates have not been able to do by, you know, cooking. So in a sense, you could argue that music can have a similar uh, trajectory in terms of its importance. So if cooking allowed us to get a lot of food in, into and then, you know, fuel our brains, uh, maybe music is something that we did with all of that free time uh, that allowed us to exchange ideas and emotions and connect with each other uh, in ways that we wouldn't have. And I don't just mean singing or creating noise, but also beat, right? So beats are a part of uh, music, a big part of it. They're tied to our ability to move. Um, and so one of the things that we see is that, you know, both kids uh, and probably our evolutionary ancestors um, learn to move better in a more coordinated fashion by synchronizing to a beat. Uh, and that beat synchrony is, is an important feature of how we develop relationships within groups. So for example, if you um, are bouncing in sync with someone else in the room, uh, then chances are you actually feel more empathy. You feel kinder, more generous towards that person. There's, there's, a, you know, a study, for example, where an experimenter at the end of the experiment dropped a bunch of pencils, and you know, if during the experiment uh, she had she had bounced in sync with the other people who were participating, they were more likely to pick up her pencils um, compared to a, pl a, a condition in which she was out of sync with them. So. And so I think that the, that that my my sort of so far my favorite kind of theory of of the evolution of music comes from this idea of it as a tool uh, that helps us sort of form civilization in a number of different ways. It helps us exchange ideas. It helps us feel connected to others. Uh, it helps us express our emotions. It helps us uh, do things that are ritualistic that are that connect us, like you know grieving and and marriage and I know other kinds of ceremonies, and that's how music has sort of helped shape society. Um, in addition to helping us understand language too, because of course, you know when you when you're talking to a baby and the baby is in their infant you know language development phase, uh, the baby is really paying attention to the rhythm of what you're saying, uh, not to the content so much. Uh, that comes later. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and is it the case that music is a human universal, that is, that it occurs in all societies that we have studied to date, contemporary and historical ones? And if so, does it have any universal features? Yeah, so far, uh, I don't know that we've found any kind of culture in which music isn't a part of you know, what, what it is that they do. Of course, music plays very different roles in different cultures. And in terms of a universal co aspect of music, uh, you know, insofar as how we define music, of course, is, is in some ways culturally biased. So you're asking, like, do all cultures have music? Well, how do you define music? <laughs> um, so, yeah, so if we agree that music has certain c qualities, like it has a beat, it has some pattern or structure, uh, it has, you know, maybe some kind of um, melody that, that, you know, is repeatable, etc. I would say the only universal that we've been able to really find is repetition. So in virtually every type of music out there, there is some level at which something is repeated, whether it's a note or a motif or a beat or what have you. There some, seems to be repetition seems to be a key feature of music, um, except in the you know, one type of music that explicitly avoids repetition, which is sometimes called, 
you know, 20th century composed music or contemporary classical or, or, or however you want to uh, term it, modern, classical, uh, none of these terms really are, are particularly uh, descriptive, but, but the truth is, is that those artists decided to go against the grain. They decided to do something that no one else had done before in music, and so they explicitly avoided repetition. And when we listen to those pieces, it can be hard to listen to uh, on a first listen, especially if you don't know what to listen for. So, you know, I kind of make the joke that, you know, those kinds of concerts don't usually sell out major stadiums. <laughs> Right, they're they're a niche. Uh, they have a niche audience, uh, and even the most you know successful composers of that era, you know, are not household names. Luciano Berio, you know, being one of them, or um, I mean, you know. So I think that uh, that that in cases where you have these these kinds of composers that are explicitly avoiding it, they're doing that um, intentionally. Whereas most people, if they don't have the intention of avoiding repetition, um, repetition naturally falls into musical composition. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's also a recent study that came out that even questions whether we all hear octaves in the same way, octave equivalence. Uh, so it's just, it just came out a couple weeks ago, actually in October. And, um, they looked at a, a, a tribe of, of people, I think they were in the Amazon, um, and there are people who really were a pretty an isolated group. And what they found was that um, when they were asked to repeat a melody by singing it, they didn't just kind of drop down into their comfortable octaves the way you and I would. So, you know, if I said, you know, sing this melody, la, 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 you would, you would probably find it in your own, like, do that. Can you do it? <laughs> yeah, la, la, la. <laughs> Yeah, so you would find, that's right, so you, you would essentially dr you drop down an octave into, into a range that's comfortable for you, as opposed to just keeping those intervals, but picking, you know, any kind of octave. So, so we used to think that that was something that was just perceptual, that we all hear it in the same way. But in this particular study, it brought that into question, because these individuals did not do that, you know, without being told to. So, so that kind of made us wonder, or, or made the, I should say, the authors of the study wonder, whether in fact this idea of octave equivalence is something that is learned, that it is not just innate. Um, so even that uh, seems to now be under question in terms of universals. So I think to be safe, I would say, you know, we can't really say that there are any universals uh, if we want to be really inclusive, but there are certainly lots of trends that happen uh, and, and that are repeated within certain big cultural boundaries. So if we think about Eastern music or Western music or classical music or, you know, hip hop or rap or each one of these genres has a set of rules um, that, you know, most, most pieces follow. And then, of course, there are outliers that are interesting. They bend the rules in interesting ways. Um, but for the most part, I think that's one of the reasons, one of the points I make in my book is that, you know, music is very subjective. There is no objectively... Uh, good or bad music. Uh, so when people ask me, well, you know, this is my favorite singer, and, you know, does she actually, do, can she sing? <laughs> my answer is, if she's your favorite singer, of course she can sing. Uh, you know, it, it, could, could she get hired by the Met to sing the lead role in, you know, their next opera? Probably not, but that's a very different, you know, type of, of uh, you know, musical production. Mm -hmm. By the way, since you referred to that, is it the case that anyone can learn to sing? I think anyone can learn to sing uh, who 
you know, basically wants to express themselves using their voice if they're able to control their voice. I mean, certainly if you have paralyzed vocal cords, that's going to make it difficult. But that isn't to say that, you know, you don't have some uh, ability to make sound uh, that is meaningful to you. You know, I think, does anybody have the ability to sing like Maria Callas or Adele or, you know, Mick Jagger? Right. That's different. Everybody's sound, everybody's voice is a product of their physical voice box, their physical larynx, etc. Plus the training it takes to know how to manipulate those muscles. Right. So, um, you know, your your skull is going to have some influence on ultimately how you sound. Uh, and of course, you can find ways of, of getting past that if that's what you want. So um, so that's the one side. It's like we do have physical differences that can, you know, basically create a boundary as the type of sounds that we could potentially make. Okay. So um, that doesn't mean that, you know, I, I, you know, so then so then the question is, well, well, what it is, how is it that you want to sing? What what bar? How are you going to um, evaluate whether now you are able to sing, right? Is it when you have the sound in your head and you're able to produce that? Now, assuming the sound in your head is physically possible for you to produce, right? So, you know, for example, if you're, if you don't have the, the physical capacity to sing octaves that are super, super high, then potentially you might never be able to do that. But that's probably not what you're getting at, right? Most people sort of have this sense of like, I want to be able to you know, match the tone in my head with my with my physical voice, and I want to, or I want to, you know, sing this particular song in key, you know, uh, uh, you know, with the right intonation and the right the right expression and so forth. And the answer is absolutely. It just might take you more or less training, depending on how good you are at manipulating your voice. And the problem is, is that the voice is so tied to our self identity and our emotions. And so often we get in our own way, right? So if we get nervous, uh, we often hear that in the way that our voice changes. So the more you practice and the more you learn about how to use your voice, the better able you are to overcome uh, some of these other issues, the more comfortable you get with it. But for some people, you know, it's not that they don't have the physical ability, you know, kind of characteristics, the raw sort of, you know, bones and you know muscles in order to do what it is that they do or the intention or the idea it's sometimes that they're just too critical and too nervous when they try to make that sound and so they become kind of blocked um so yeah there's always something that you can do right i mean i think to me what's really fascinating about the field that i'm in in, in terms of enhancing um, musical training by using neuroscience is that there's always another avenue, right? So, you know, depending on what your block is, what it is that's keeping you from producing the sound that you want to make, um, there are many different avenues that you can get around that particular obstacle. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But yeah, it takes training. I mean, in fact, if we look at the brains of singers, we see that they have more white matter in this kind of uh, track, this set of con uh, fibers that joins these two regions uh, in the brain on the right side, in the, in the right hemisphere, that are equivalent to the areas that produce and comprehend language in the left hemisphere. So most of us in our left hemisphere, if we're able to speak using language um, effectively, we have this uh, fiber tract called the arcuate fasciculus, which is an awesome name. Uh, and it connects two regions of the brain that you might have heard of, uh, Broca's and Wernicke's areas, right? So Wernicke's area is the part of the brain that is involved in comprehending language, understanding what people say. Broca's area is the part of the brain that is involved in producing language, being able to turn what it is that you want to say into an actual sentence. 
there's so this fiber tract is what joins these two regions so that when you hear what it is that, or when you when you comprehend and you want to respond you know your neurons send signals to the area the production area um, and then the sort of as part of this larger circuit that allows you to then respond in the way that you want to respond right so so that's the language side. So essentially, that's the equivalent of trying to sing what it is that you hear in your head, except in, in the case of singers, it seems to be uh, more localized in the right hemisphere. That doesn't mean that the left hemisphere isn't involved. It's very much involved. Um, but this particular fiber tract tends to grow in size with singing training. Okay, So the more trained a singer is, the fatter that fiber tract is so that those, those connections happen more effectively. Um, so that means that singers can actually control uh, their vocal muscles more effectively than people who are not trained as singers. Uh, and that comes with practice. Mm -hmm. uh, and since you refer to that, to the, to the differences in terms of some areas of the brain that are more developed in singers or people that practice singing, is there already a well-established neuroscience of music that is, uh, have, we, have we already mapped all the different areas of the brain that are responsible for uh, processing, uh, understanding, producing music and things like that? Well, I guess I'll ask you the first, the, uh, first question before that. Have we already mapped all the cognitive processes involved in processing and understanding and producing music? I mean, probably not, right? There's always, there's always more room to learn. There's so many different ways in which we can uh, interact with music, whether we are listening or whether we are active participants or whether we are composing. Uh, and, of, of course, the brain basis of each of these activities is going to differ. Uh, so I can't say that, you know, there is a a kind of comprehensive model that explains every use that we have of music because we can't say that you know from the behavioral side so we certainly can't say that from the neuroscience side because that would come afterwards once we understand the behavior then we can actually go in and, in, and sort of map out the brain but until we understand the behavior uh, you know we can try we can make some inroads but we can't have a you know fully comprehensive answer um, and I think that that's okay because of course the way we use, use music is evolving right so it used to be that we spent a lot of our time uh, when we were listening to music in a live performance setting, right? Now we spend most of our time listening to music in the background, actually, uh, or recorded music, uh, right? So, and we don't even like have the intention anymore of pulling out the record and putting it on the record player and sitting down and listening. We're usually multitasking. We're usually doing something else. It's you know, it's doing, it, it it's you know, it, it's it's there while we're cooking for the dinner party. It's there while we're shopping. It's there, you know, when we're waiting at the airport. Um, so our relationship with music is changing, and so of course the way our brains process music is also changing. Um, but we do have a lot of research so far, uh, sort of understanding if you think about it, if you think about a specific use for music, so listening to uh, you know make yourself feel calm, uh, we can map out those kinds of circuits, and we can show using brain imaging results essentially what is happening. Um, if you are getting the chills from music, that's another well-studied uh, area where we can really map out the parts of the brain that are involved in getting the chills, what aspects of the music give you the chills most likely, um, you know, and so forth. So, so that, that sort of is well mapped out as well. We can also, um, we also have a lot of uh, uh, data showing the kinds of changes that happen with musical training. So whether it's, you know, six months when you're six years old, or whether it's, you know, 20 years uh, and everything in between, of course, the changes that happen with musical training are going to be different from somebody who played an instrument for a year when they were seven versus somebody who played an instrument, you know, at 10 hours a day since they were seven. Um, but we can see 
the kinds of brain changes that separate musicians from non-musicians and, and that they are, we call them dose responsive. So that means that the more training you have, the more we see these differences. Um, and so they're, they're, they range from something as simple as just being able to process sound. So the sort of very first, um, this is EEG work or ERP work, event-related potentials, where we basically see a person's automatic response uh, even before they're really conscious of the sound, what's happening in their brain. We see differences between musicians and non-musicians. So musicians are kind of primed to uh, already accept the stimulus in a way that non-musicians have not primed their brains to do. Um, all the way to once you have many years of training, we see differences in your anatomy. So for example, Einstein's brain has, uh, has this little hook in uh, one part of his somatosensory and motor cortex um, where it kind of, yeah, it looks like this little U-shaped curve. And that happens in people who play the violin uh, because over time they develop more dexterity uh, in their hands, uh, especially their left hand, not their bowing uh, hand. Uh, and so on the, in the right hemisphere, we see this signature. It's called the omega sign uh, in people who have learned to play the violin. So, you know, we know Einstein was a violinist and we see the omega sign in his brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. So let me just go back a little bit to when I asked you if everyone can sing. Uh, since you're an opera singer, I, I mean, isn't it the case that when people are singing, I mean, sometimes people sing happy songs, sad songs, angry songs. I mean, it should be the case that while you are singing, you feel some emotion, right? So. Uh, what, what do you do to control those emotions and to not let them interfere with your vocal performance? Uh, I rehearse. <laughs> so, you know, there are times that I have emotions I need to let out. There's nothing better than a great revenge aria uh, when you're feeling angry. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, and of course, there are, there are times like I, when I experienced, I actually experienced a pregnancy loss. And then I sang this one aria by Puccini, where essentially the, the main character is, is, is just found out that her baby had died. And, you know, it's like, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't finish it without crying. But it, it allowed me to uh, sort of come to terms with, with my grief in a way that nothing else that I had done had been able to. But I certainly wouldn't have, I, and to this day, I probably will never be able to perform that piece in public <laughs> uh, because I simply don't think that I will be able to control my emotions enough uh, for it to be, you know, for, for me to be sure that I wouldn't break down on stage. And of course that would affect my ability to sing. Um, so, so one story I tell in the book is that there was this one character that I played called, named Beth uh, from uh, Little Women. Um, uh, if anyone remembers the novel, there are four sisters, and Beth is the one that dies. <laughs> so uh, you know, so and 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 in in the scene in which she's dying, it's very it's beautifully written. It's Mark Adamo, um, and essentially she has to sing this very soft but very high aria. So it's these like these these high notes where you know you have to have a lot of precise control. Um, and uh, and you know she she's singing that, and then she's dying. And you know it 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 took. A lot of uh, during rehearsal, I often broke down uh, because as I was thinking about what I'm doing and you know the the sort of the story, and then looking into the eyes of my sister as she's watching me die, you know all that kind of stuff is like brain moving. 
Um, but I knew that I had to essentially rehearse it until I no longer felt the need to have those feelings, but still be able to make an effective performance. So as actors, as singers, we learn how to do that, right? We, it's not our job to feel on stage. It's, it's our job to make you feel in the audience. Um, so we learn what are the critical aspects of what we are doing that in, induce emotions in the audience and um, what are the things that can, you know, how, how can we get there without having to cede control of our own emotions? Um, you know, there's there's uh, there's like lots of great jokes about method acting. You know, people who go to the extreme to embody their characters, but ultimately that's not necessary, right? I mean, it can be an effective method, but it can also be effective to know what it is that you need to show, um, but not actually have to go through all the angst um, of doing it. And I think that, you know, ultimately when we when we go to a, an opera, when we go to the, the movies, et cetera, we're, we're kind of signing an, an implicit contract with the artists that we understand that what's happening on stage is still an artifice, right? It's not real. Uh, we don't want people to actually die on stage, right? Um, that would be sad. Uh, it would be a one-night-only performance, right? So, um, so, you know, with that understanding, I think that the audience is somewhat more willing to suspend disbelief. They don't need such a real authentic performance that it ends up in, you know, this, this sort of tragic event. Um, so there is a little bit of, of, of the audience being accepting of the fact that it's not going to be fully real. Um, but I still think that as, as singers, as actors, we learn, you know, how to do this. And to me, you know, if a piece is, if I'm finding it too difficult uh, during rehearsal to sing through a piece without uh, breaking down, I mean, I do it until I know that I can do it, right? It's like the, the difference between an amateur and a professional is that an amateur practices until they get it right, a professional practices until she can't get it wrong. Uh, and so that's sort of the, 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 tra the tack I take, especially when there's a particularly emotional piece. Um, I practice until I can't get it wrong. Um, and then I allow myself to indulge at certain times, right? Like, so um, barbers... Um, um, summer Knoxville, summer of 1915, is one of my favorite pieces. It's this wonderful, nostalgic, uh, uh, you know, kind of trip down memory lane by this little boy. And, uh, and you know, I love that piece. And when I'm singing it in uh, front of an audience, I just rely on the fact that this is such a great piece and I need to sing it well and the audience will get it. But when I'm at home and I want to indulge in the experience, like I let myself go, you know, I let I let myself sort of sing that piece until I cry. And that's okay because that's, you know, that's that's for me. That's not for you. That's, that's, you know, but when I come and someone's paid me to do something for them, that's my, you know, it's a different it's a different job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, do we know why certain songs are catchier than others? I, I mean, is there any good explanation for that? And on the other hand, there's also this thing, I don't know if it's true or not, but it seems to me that there are certain people that are more predisposed to uh, catching earworms, let's say, because, for example, uh, just this last January after I saw that recent movie about Freddie Mercury, I went, <laughs> through, I went through an entire week uh, all day uh, with Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> on my <laughs> mind, so I'm not sure if that happens with other people, but... Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it. Bohemian Rhapsody is a great example of a song that is kind of ripe for creating earworms. And we can talk about the kinds of music that uh, that do kind of get stuck in our heads. Um, but let me answer the first part of your question first before we get sort of into the earworms, which is which is you know this idea that are some people more susceptible 
Uh, and the answer is yes, people who uh, are musicians are more susceptible because they probably spend more of their time sort of thinking about imagining uh, and hearing music in their heads. So, you know, that's kind of precursor of getting a song, song stuck. Uh, women seem to get them more often, uh, or maybe just as often as men, but they seem to be more irritated by them. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, that, that there's maybe a kind of gender thing there, but that might have something more to do with, uh, you know, other aspects of, of being male or female in our current culture. Um, and, you know, so I, yeah, so I think that it's, it's mainly people who have a strong relationship with music that might be um, more annoyed by and notice the fact that they are getting stuck songs in their heads. Um, is there something about the music itself that makes it uh, more catchy? I think those are two separate questions. So you can have a catchy song that you know people go on singing, but that doesn't necessarily lead to earworms. Um, and and usually the songs that are catchy that don't lead to earworms have a kind of obvious conclusion, right? So they kind of they kind of you know get to the end and then you're kind of done. So they don't they don't get stuck. The songs that get stuck are ones that are repetitive and kind of have you know are kind of looping. Um, so even though Bohemian Rhapsody has uh, a kind of ultimate climax, the climax and and all the changes that go through it are so different enough that if you're just letting you're not really paying attention, you're letting it go, you can get stuck on one part of the loop. Right. Um, and the trick then is to sort of think, sit down and think carefully about the entire song until you get to the big climax, do the big finish in your head and end it. Right. Um, but songs like Baby Shark or Who Let the Dogs Out or, you know, all these other songs, Lady Gaga's Poker Face, um, you know, they have these kinds of little loops that don't end. Uh, and those are the ones that are most likely to get stuck because, of course, there isn't this kind of big finish. And so your brain thinks, oh, it's still still going on. So we'll just keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in my case, it was that part of the song of Mama just killed the <laughs> Yeah. That part really stuck in my mind for an, an entire week. So. Yeah, you know, interestingly, we just recently watched the Muppet movie, like the very first one from like probably the 1980s. And they do a version with, uh, or maybe, no, maybe it was a Muppet show. I can't remember. But they do a version of Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, in the Muppets, and they changed the lyrics, of course. There's no, like, just killed a man, right? Because it's for kids, right? <laughs> um, but it's, 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 I feel like that could be an option if you're, like, getting stuck, like, listening to the Muppet version, because I feel like that will be different enough that it'll, it'll get the song unstuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe next time I will take that advice seriously. But I should say one 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 other quick thing that I'll say is when it comes to like song syndrome, we do see a a a kind of um, connection with people that have other kinds of OCD symptoms, obsessive compulsive disorder, and we do see some of the same brain substrates. So you can kind of think of you know stuck song syndrome or earworms as a kind of obsessive compulsive thing. So for some people for whom it gets really annoying, they might it might kind of become a, a little bit of an, an obsession where they have a hard time turning it off, uh, and that's because the part of their brain called the caudate seems to be overactive. Um, it's the same part of the brain that is larger in people with OCD. So I think that there, there is that side of it. So if you, if you tend towards getting stuck song, you know, ultimately if it's really, really bothersome and you have other, uh, other problems as well related to OCD, like go see a psychiatrist because they have drugs for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So that should be useful for some of my audience. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> so, um, I mean, another question, uh, do we have to have at least some understanding of, uh, of the cultural background behind a particular song or genre to fully appreciate it? 
I mean, I guess it depends on what you mean by fully appreciate. I think that um, oftentimes it helps, right? Even, even it helps to know what the artist's intentions were for any kind of art. If you see, you know, someone, uh, you know, drew a, put a blank canvas on the wall of the Modern Museum of Art, like, you know, are you going to enjoy that blank canvas? Well, you'll probably enjoy it a little bit more if you understand what the artist's intention was, what it was that they were trying to, you know, say in their with their artwork, etc. So I think the same is true for music that you're not, uh, that you don't find immediately uh, appealing, right? So, um, you know, I think that if you find opera or classical music or rap or hip hop or whatever, whatever you, whatever genre you have that you don't generally like, uh, the chances of you liking it are going to improve if you understand what the context is. So, for example, um, when I was first doing research for the book, and you know, one of the things I noticed is I had done this survey. I had I had done this um, City Arts and Lectures event. It's an NPR program, and uh, and as part of it, one of the things that I wanted to do is is perform a piece in front of the audience and also survey them about a number of different things. I was really interested in how. Um, watching a live performance can induce feelings of empathy towards, uh, you know, towards other people. And so, um, so as part of that survey, uh, I actually had people, you know, re report a, a number of different things. Um, but, you know, okay, right, now I remember, sorry. So yeah, we were talking about, you know, so some people I asked them what kinds of music they like because I wanted to make sure that, you know, people who have a particular response, maybe they just hate classical music or they hate the piece that I was performing. And so maybe that would, you know, I would perhaps exclude those individuals from the rest of the study. That's right. So uh, we were talking about rap. So one of the things that I, I, I found was that people either, um, you know, they didn't say, oh, I don't like pop music or I don't like, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, new age music, or I don't like yoga music, or I don't like, but people often said I hate rap, or I hate hip hop. Um, so for some reason, this was something that, you know, got at least that audience, there were people there who really felt very strongly about it. And so I did a little bit of research to try to figure out what it was. And I, and I think part of it is that people don't, I mean, I think there could be uh, let's not, you know, there could be racial and, you know, bias, uh, there could be, you know, uh, it could be all kinds of things explaining it. But one of the things I think is that often people don't know what to listen for. Um, they hear somebody rapping, they don't understand half of the words, um, they don't really get, or the words that they do understand are explicit or, you know, somehow offensive. Um, and so I wanted to sort of get a sense of sort of historically where rap and hip hop kind of came from. Uh, and it turns out that, you know, there was a time in, in the city of New York where people would have parties in the street. And that was one way for some disenfranchised communities to kind of take back part of their uh, city. And so they wanted these dance parties to last longer and longer. So they developed this ability of keeping a beat going by using two, ta two turntables. So two, two turntables and a microphone, right? Uh, and so the microphone, you know, then allowed uh, people to sort of lay on top of that, that um, you know, underlying beat their own thoughts and feelings. And often they were very political. Uh, and so to me, the kind of wordplay and the, the cleverness of, of the lyrics and the kind of, you know, the almost roasting nature of, of, of both hip hop and rap became really interesting to me about how like, you know, people are, are using this um, medium to express their thoughts and in a, in a way that they wouldn't be able to in any other venue, um, you know, because it just wasn't, you know, they either they wouldn't be heard or it would be considered, you know, inappropriate or offensive. And so, um, so that kind of changed my approach to sort of listening to that kind of 
of music. And now, you know, instead of just, I mean, I, I always liked, I have to say, I always, I liked hip hop and, you know, my nickname in high school was Dr. Dre. So, I, you know, I've always liked it. Uh, but in, it, it allowed me to, to listen to it in a different way because now all of a sudden when I listen to new hip-hop or new rap that I haven't heard before, I listen for the stylings of the person who is speaking and the kinds of turns of phrases they use, the cleverness with the beat, with the lyrics, etc. And that's what I find really interesting. So by learning about the context of it, 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 it absolutely enhanced my appreciation of that kind of music. Now, somebody can listen to a great Beethoven symphony and enjoy it without knowing the context in which Beethoven wrote it, for sure. Um, but also understanding the context in which Beethoven wrote, wrote it can add new layers of interest. And so I think it can give you a deeper understanding. So the question is, is it necessary? Not necessary. Um, is it sufficient? Sometimes even if you understand the context, it's still not sufficient. Um, but can it enhance your enjoyment of what you're listening and add uh, other layers of meaning? Absolutely. Uh, and so I think when people say to me, well, I, you know, don't like this particular kind of music, my answer is, well, how much time have you really spent trying to understand the context and what they're doing? And it's fine if ultimately you don't like it, or even if you don't like it, or you don't want to put in the time to do that. I mean, that's your choice. Um, but, you know, I don't tend to take their opinions very seriously when they just outright, you know, say, I don't like that because, oh, I experienced it. And, you know, I just didn't, it wasn't for me as opposed to, well, you know, I kind of you know, spent some time understanding what the artist was saying, and I don't agree with the artist, or I think the artist, you know, kind of butchered the way that they're trying to do this thing. I mean, that's a, that's a different, that's a more nuanced conversation, and that's more interesting to me. Mm -hmm. uh, since you just referred to musical tastes, in your book you say that two of the biggest forces that shape them are our parents and our teenage hormones. So is it then during, <laughs> is it then during childhood and adolescence that we really acquire our musical tastes that will last for the rest of our lives? Well, and so, and by parents, what I really mean is your kind of early childhood context. Uh, so not just your parents, but whether you live under an underpass and there's noise going on all the time or, you know, uh, or whether you live in a very quiet house. Uh, and so because that essentially uh, is where your brain is developing its ability to process sound. Okay, so, um, so as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, definitely we see in musicians' brains a different relationship with sound, even before it comes into consciousness, right? So the way that their brains process sound is different. Uh, so I think that that's where the early environment can have an outsized effect. Uh, so if you're a kind of person where, you know, you lived, you grew up in a very noisy environment and you learn to tune out sound, you might actually not hear some of the nuances uh, in particular types of music that other people hear. Um, or you might find that you get very bored if there isn't a constant change in the music. So for individuals, uh, you know, an individual like that, it might be very difficult for them to sit down and listen to a quiet piece of music. Um, but for someone who, uh, you know, grew up in a very, very quiet household, who had to pay attention to every kind of noise, um, their brain might be overwhelmed by, you know, a cacophony of sound and, you know, uh, electronic dance music, but might just find, you know, the most minimalist Philip Glass opera sublime because it's, you know, it's tapping into all the things that they, they find meaningful and, and, and interesting, etc. So that's where I mean, like that early childhood stage kind of sets the tone for what abilities you, your brain develops in that sensitive period of, of auditory processing development. And then, of course, yeah, your teenage hormones have a huge impact because what's happening in your teenage years is that you are separating from your parents 
And one way in which you uh, can easily separate yourself from your parents is through music, uh, because music does group us in different ways, right? So that's one of the reasons why people can hate a type of music, because they feel threatened by the group of people who are making that music. Um, in fact, we see, you know, levels of the attachment hormone oxytocin uh, are very much uh, modulated by music. So um, when you're listening to music that you really like, that you feel is really you know, uh, helps you bond with others. Well, when you're moving in sync, we see levels of oxytocin that are higher in your brain uh, than under other circumstances. Whereas, um, but those same high oxytocin levels, so oxytocin is not just a love hormone, right? It's not just all good stuff. Uh, it also makes you aggressive towards people that you, th that you find threatening uh, to your loved ones. So if then, you know, that, that means that, you know, this whole idea of like East Coast, West Coast, hip hop rivalry, like it's, it's you know, very much based in neurochemicals, right? So, um, it's possible that, you know, you can feel anger towards uh, an, a, a group of people that you feel is threatening your loved ones and that music can kind of enhance uh, that, that, uh, those feelings of aggression. Um, so during your teenage years, when you're trying to find yourself uh, and trying to separate yourself from your parents, people often do find music as a way of defining themselves uh, and also finding other people with whom they can connect. And so it makes sense uh, that, you know, that these hormones play a role. Of course, uh, you're also a little bit more rebellious in your teenage years because of this drive to separate. And you don't yet have a fully wired up prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain that develops last and also is involved in things like impulse control and, you know, rational thinking and so forth. So, you know, in this kind of context, you can imagine that, you know, the big hormonal shifts in your emotions uh, lead you to maybe do things that, you know, kind of get you into trouble with the people that you, you know, your parents, et cetera. But, but also uh, remember that these big surges in emotion um, are something that music is very good at inducing and also, you know, finding comfort in. So because you're going through these big emotional roller coasters in uh, your teenage years, um, music can both enhance those emotions and also, you know, uh, can be a way, an outlet for those emotions. So I think that that means that you can feel very much a, a lot of comfort from uh, the kind of music that, it, you know, it, it is you know, emotional for you. So for me, I listened to a lot of heavy metal when I was a teenager. I know, don't tell my mom. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I had a lot of anger and rage that I was working through. And up until then, I uh, had been like, you know, nerdy, good girl. And uh, so this was something that I was trying to trying to find my rebellious side. And so I listened to ACDC. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, so I think that that kind of, you know, I, I still have an, a, a fondness for that kind of music. Today, it makes up a very small percentage of my playlist. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's the kind of music that looking back when I'm in a, you know, in, in the, with dementia in a nursing home many years, hopefully, from yet, from now, um, it'll probably still feel connect, a connection, you know, with, for me. So, um, and that's what we see is that, even if people like can can objectively look back at the music they loved in their teenage years as not really make potentially all that great from their own perspective, and I'm not saying ACDs is not great; they are great. Um, but you know, there's other music that I've 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 since uh, loved. Um, but you still have this very strong sense tied with you know memory and emotion to that period, um, and also tied to you know who you are as a person. So I think that that's one of the reasons why that's a very formative time. Um, and so for most of us, music from those years uh, can you know can be very effective. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, do you know if there's any connection between personality and musical tastes? Because I was just thinking that uh, I've already had some behavioral geneticists on the show and we know that uh, for all psychological traits that we've studied, there's somewhat of a big genetic basis behind them, even for things like uh, more or less predisposition to religiosity, mm -hmm. uh, political leanings. So, I, I mean, I, I asked about personality, because since personality is 40 to 50% influenced by genetic factors, and then if there was a connection with musical tastes, I mean, there could be some innate aspect to it, I, I don't know. I mean, again, I think because music is such a powerful way of putting putting us into groups and separating us, I think that people with different personalities will gravitate towards music that speaks to them. So, you know, you can have the introverts maybe listening to emo <laughs> uh, and the extroverts listening to like, you know, ABBA or big pop, pop dance hits, whatever. Um, I, you know, now I'm just like speculating. But certainly I think that, yes, yeah, certain personality traits will not only affect the kind of music that you gravitate towards because other people who share your same personality will, you know, you, you might that be, might be a shared bonding experience. And of course, the, the musician that you are particularly you know, uh, impressed with might also share some personality traits. And that's why you feel connected with them, right? Well, we see in the brains of people who are listening to music that is, um, you know, that they find, uh, you know, moving is that they essentially mirror uh, in their own brains the activity of the brains of the person who is producing the music. So, um, we see that kind of empathy and mirroring. Uh, so, of course, the more you can relate to the person on the stage, uh, the more, the better able your brain will be to mirror uh, what it is that you're that they're doing, and therefore, you know, feel connected, and therefore feel connected to others people around you. Um, but I also think the other personality trait, uh, or the I say I should say the personality dimension that can have an effect on your music musical taste is openness to new experiences, right? So I think that people who are more open to new experiences might have a wider palette of the kinds of music that they're willing to listen to, um, whereas people who are, are more um, more rigid in terms of their, uh, their you know, their, their um, uh, the way they approach new experiences might, t might become more like aficionados. So choose a jo genre and then become very passionate about that particular genre, but less likely to explore new types of music. And we do see that openness to new experiences is something that declines with age for many of us. Um, and, uh, and we see the same thing in musical tastes. So musical tastes become more uh, fixated as we get older. We tend to be less likely to experience new kinds of music. And I think that has two reasons. One, of course, is that the next generation of musicians probably are less relatable to us as we get older because we are becoming further and further away from the, their experience. Um, and two, I think because you know, it takes work to understand and learn about a new genre uh, because you have to understand the context and you have to spend a lot of time listening. And so if you're already not willing to put in the work to listen, it's unlikely that you will find, you know, the, the kind of ability to appreciate this new genre because it'll just sound strange to you. You won't get it, quote unquote. Um, and I think that so I think that as you get older, if you're less light, if you're less likely to put in the work to kind of understand the context and, and um get what the, what, the, uh, what the artist is trying to say, then it'll be harder for you to enjoy that kind of music. And then, of course, music is just traditionally, maybe because we talked about how it's such a powerful force in our teenage years, you know, it, it can become a kind of young people's cry, right? So, um, 
So there are generational differences uh, there as well. So I would say, like globally, probably yes, your personality affects the kind your approach to music. Um, not necessarily that different personalities, uh, you know, are going to find different music, but your how you consume music is going to be different, right? Depending on your personality, and of course, how you consume music, the amount of time you put in, whether you're open to listening to new uh, music, what you know, all that kind of stuff is going to have an effect on whether or not you enjoy that music. Okay, so Dr. Viscontes, I'm starting to get mindful of your time, so let's end, uh, let's end the interview here. Uh, just before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Sure, so they can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Indrevis, I-N-D-R-E-V-I-S. Um, they can also find my website, which is indreviscontes.com. Um, but I have two podcasts, and in particular, one podcast I think that um, maybe your listeners, after listening to this conversation, might enjoy is called Cadence. Um, and it's about what music can tell us about the mind. Uh, we have two seasons uh, out. So, and we're about to launch the third season. Uh, hopefully in December, we're going to put out the next, um, the first couple episodes of the next season. Uh, and so these are more produced uh, episodes than my other podcast, um, which I'll tell you about in a minute. And uh, they, you know, we really explore the question of what, what can music tell us about what it's like to be human? The first season is really about kind of an overview of music in the brain uh, with some uh, particular stories told by, especially by professional musicians. And then the second season is really about, um, can music serve as medicine? So we take eight uh, cases or eight individuals who have, uh, who have used music to help themselves uh, heal from, you know, various either, either traumas or they have different um, disorders or, or, or what have you. Um, and then this third season that we're working on now is really about how music influences us. Uh, so, you know, the ways in which music plays a role in our everyday lives, but also on the most important moments uh, in our lives. So that's Cadence. Uh, you can find it wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, and then the podcast I do every week is called Inquiring Minds. It's uh, um, long-form interview-based mainly, although once in a while we do a kind of up-to-date where we talk about science in the news and we explore the space where science and society collide. So check those out. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview and also to your book and the rest of your work. So Dr. Viscontes, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show and it was a really lovely conversation. So Thanks so much, Ricardo. Have a good night. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gilinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jakob Klinkby, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingart. My three producers is our web, Rosie and Jim Frank, and my executive producer, Michael 
Ruzieski. Thank you for all.